Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello and welcome back to New Books in History, the channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zeb Larson. And today we're joined by Professor Sarah Snyder of American University to discuss her book, Assembled in Moscow, a human rights activist transformed foreign policy, published by Columbia University Press in 2018. The book fills an underexamined gap in the historiography of human rights by analyzing how human rights came to be an important concern of U.S. foreign policy by 1976. Snyder argues that transnational connections between American and foreign actors helped to catalyze American interests in human rights. Snyder draws on five different geographical case studies and the work done by congressmen to make clear this transformation and drew on both traditional diplomatic archival resources, as well as the papers of several different congressmen. Dr. Snyder, welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, Tell us a little bit about yourself, where you went to school, and how you came to write this book. Well, right now I teach at American University's School of International Service in Washington, D.C., and so I'm returning to Washington, uh, where I got my Ph.D. at Georgetown in the History Department. Okay. Uh, Who did you work with at Georgetown? So at Georgetown, um, Nancy Bernhoff Tucker was my primary supervisor, but I also worked very closely with David Painter and Michael Kazin. They were on my dissertation committee. Um, My dissertation was on the uh, influence of the Helsinki process that came out of the Conference on Security and Cooperation in Europe on U.S.-Soviet relations in the late Cold War. And uh, then I revised that into my first book, um, Human Rights Activism and the End of the Cold War, a transnational history of the Helsinki Network. Now, just briefly, maybe for the listeners, if you could tell us a little bit about that first book. What were your conclusions? Of course. Uh, my conclusions were that the much to the surprise of pretty much everyone who participated uh, in the initial negotiations that produced the 1975 Helsinki Final Act, that this agreement had spurred a wave of, of human rights activism on both sides of the Iron Curtain and that this activism contributed to the peaceful end to the Cold War in Europe. Okay. My next question, then, how did it help? I mean, and I think it's in some ways obvious, but how did it help lead into this book? Well, um, 
it it led into this book um, in that um, I was interested in how the U.S. government formulated its foreign policy regarding human rights. And I was interested in how actors outside of the U.S. government who hope that the United States will pay more attention to human rights are able to advance and achieve that policy agenda. So I would say that the sort of um, the common thread between the two books is how can non-state actors who care about human rights shape U.S. foreign policy? Um, but the, the second book did not necessarily come out of the research agenda of the first book, but rather um, when I was finishing the first book, someone asked me if I would like to present at a conference talking about um, sort of issues in the Lyndon Johnson administration that were not connected to the war in Vietnam. So sort of an attempt to go beyond um, just thinking about Johnson's foreign policy record through the prism of Vietnam. And I said, you know, I don't actually have any material on that, but I'm quite interested in that question. And so the research um, that I did essentially to write the conference paper that I was invited to give then led to the book project. Um, and part of that was because I was teaching a course on the history of the United States and international human rights. And I felt like there was a real gap in the literature, um, essentially in between the Bricker Amendment controversy in the Eisenhower administration and greater attention to human rights uh, with the Carter administration. And so it was, it was both kind of driven by a recognition um, that there was, wasn't enough out there for teaching and this invitation. Um, so that's how I got started on this second project. Fascinating. Now, uh, before we dive into From Selma to Moscow, I'm just curious, what did the archival research look like for this project? It was um, it was varied. Um, it required a lot of a lot of financial support and a lot of travel. Um, certainly, you know, I did research in some of the places that we would absolutely expect a diplomatic historian would be doing research. Um, the National Archives here in the Washington area, going through State Department records. Um, I also visited the Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, and Ford presidential libraries. Um, but I, I probably traveled to, I don't know, at least eight um, collections of congressional papers. So, uh, for example, I went to Minnesota to go through uh, Donald Frazier's papers, and I went to Boise, Idaho to go through Frank Church's papers. Um, I also worked in the, the archives of a number of key human rights organizations like Amnesty International. Um, and then I also did... Uh, research in the British as well as Chilean um, archive, looking through their records um, relating to their foreign policy. Wonderful. So having set up the book a little bit, let's talk about it. From Selma to Moscow, how is this book structured? So the book is structured um, around, there's, there are six main chapters to the book. Five of them are geographically focused on uh, the Soviet Union, Southern Rhodesia, South Korea, Chile and Greece. And then the final chapter looks at congressional hearings held in the early 1970s and uh, both the sort of genesis of those hearings and then what I see as their lasting accomplishments in terms of legislation that was produced by the hearings. And I'm curious, um, so those those five geographical chapters, um, they were all very interesting. And I'm curious, 
what drew you specifically to them? Did you think that they were the most resonant issues for human rights actors at the time, or they were they sort of the more significant ones in hindsight? What about those drew you? So I, I started off collecting, um, say, when I went to the Johnson Library or when I was in Amnesty International's records, collecting on a wide range of countries, um, some of which, say, I knew to have poor human rights records. Um, you know, a country like China or a country like Iran, I was interested in how much um, American actors were concerned about the human rights mm-hmm. violations in those places. And um, what... I decided in the end, um, I think that I, I could have certainly had more cases, um, but I thought that these five cases were the countries that were of most concern to the American actors that I was looking at. Um, the, the only exception to that, I would say, would be South Africa, which I didn't include because I thought there had already been so much good literature on sort of um, American activism regarding apartheid in South Africa. But um, beyond South Africa, I really, um, I went with the cases that inspired the most congressional, um, diplomatic, uh, and non-governmental activism. Interesting. And, and before I want to, and I want to start diving into these case studies so listeners can appreciate sort of these interesting and disparate circumstances that bring people together. Do you, do you have any sense... What makes a human rights issue sort of catch public interest in the United States? You know, I think it was Adam Hochschild who said that human rights issues are fickle. Uh, The Belgian Congo caught people at the beginning of the 20th century, but the French Congo, which had similar issues, never resonated the same way. Do you have a sense of of what factors sort of drive interest, at least in the United States in this period? Well, one of the things that I argue in the book is that uh, Americans in this period were in my view, drawn to human rights activism through transnational connections. So just to to give you one example, thinking about the chapter that focuses on Greece, um, in the wake of the 1967 coup in Greece, um, many Americans, particularly economists, mobilized to try and save um, the most prominent political prisoner at the time, Andreas Papandreou, who they worried that the Greek government was going to execute. Um, because he uh, was seen as a threat uh, to the military junta in power. And the reason, and Andreas, um, before going into Greek politics, um, had tr- had been trained and worked as an economist in the United States in a number of institutions on the, on the East Coast, in Minnesota, in California. And he had a very wide network of economists who were sending telegrams to the White House, who traveled to Greece to try and um, have his conditions of imprisonment improved to try and secure his release from the Greek government. And so um, I, in the in the book, I, I call him an identifiable political prisoner because he was well known to many influential Americans, and this motivated their activism in response to the coup in Greece. Hmm. Okay. So let's, let's dive now into the specific chapter. Let's start with chapter one. What is chapter one about? So chapter one is about um, the ways in which Americans respond to a range of human rights violations in the Soviet Union. Um, We often think about Americans being active regarding um, the push for Soviet Jews to be able to emigrate, in particular, to be able to um, emigrate and move to Israel. But there were also um, a number of other human rights issues, say freedom of expression, um, that motivated Americans. And so um, there were, I would say, a range of groups 
who were concerned throughout the period that the book looks at, um, which is really sort of 1961 up until 1976, um, and who who expressed their concern in a range of ways. Um, There were large-scale demonstrations on the Mall in Washington, at Madison Square Garden, out in front of the Soviet consulate in New York City, um, as well as letter-writing campaigns, op-eds, Um, And so this was a a cause that inspired many Americans um, to speak out about what they saw as as human rights violations in the Soviet Union. What time period are we talking about here? Just so we have nice specific dates for listeners. Well, I would say that, um, I mean, the book covers the Kennedy administration through the Ford administration. But um, in terms of activism surrounding um, the plight of Soviet citizens, I would say that it really picks up um, in the mid to late 1960s. That's when you start to have organizations um, that are specifically devoted, say, to the struggle of Soviet Jewry. That's a time when you start to have um, more significant public demonstrations. Um, and and so it's, it's really something that picks up, um, I would say, sort of in, in the years between 1965 and 1967. Okay. Um... That's getting close to, it hasn't quite yet begun, uh, the era of detente. So does that do, does the issue of um, rights for Soviet Jewry or freedom of expression have an impact on, on the, the Nixon administration as it tries to move towards a new kind of relationship with the Soviet Union? Well, one thing that I found in my research was that, um, you know, I think we, we're aware of uh, the ways in which the Nixon administration was cautious about championing human rights um, based on a fear that this could um, damage other items on their diplomatic agenda. And this was the case with the Soviet Union as well as other countries. But I was interested to see how much the Johnson administration had a very similar position in terms of not wanting to criticize the Soviet Union, say, publicly in a UN forum. And I think that um, we often... um, overlook how much the Johnson administration was interested in pursuing detente with the Soviet Union. You know, for a number of reasons, it didn't um, come to fruition as much as he might have hoped. Um, But just as, say, Johnson was potentially willing to overlook the the invasion of Prague in 1968 in order to have the summit meeting that he wanted, uh, the Johnson administration was also willing to overlook human rights violations in the Soviet Union in order to improve their relationship with that country. So moving on to chapter two, what is chapter two about? Chapter two is about um, the ways in which Americans responded to the unilateral declaration of independence by Ian Smith's white minority regime in Southern Rhodesia in 1965. Okay. So which actors are we looking on the American side? Are we looking at in this particular uh, case study? Who are, who are the responsible players? One of the most um, active Americans in this period regarding Southern Rhodesia was the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Arthur Goldberg, um, who repeatedly spoke out um, at the U.N. through op-eds in letters to Johnson and said, essentially, we can't have two policies regarding racial discrimination. We cannot say that um, all Americans should have full access to their rights but that black Southern Rhodesians don't deserve the same um, sort of full achievement of their rights. And so again and again, he said um, that we can't have a double standard, essentially. Um, And there were a number of other people who were um, 
active in the civil rights movement in the United States who were trying to put pressure on the U.S. government to be um, sort of more aggressive um, in trying to deny the staying power of Ian Smith and his regime. Um, and in particular, in terms of, of organizations, I would say that the American Committee on Africa um, did things like mobilize uh, dock workers to refuse to unload ships that were coming in from um, southern Rhodesia and to have demonstrations to signal uh, their displeasure with, with Ian Smith's regime. Now, you bring this up for this for this chapter in Rhodesia, but also the chapter in South Korea, that there's a strong involvement of, of church groups within this. Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, I would say that uh, the involvement of, of church groups in my um, reading is mostly tied to um, missionaries who are serving in these countries and who develop um, close personal relationships with people whose human rights are abused, which lead them then to become um, not just sort of religious actors in their communities, but human rights actors in their communities. And in the case of uh, South Korea, there is an American missionary who is arrested and then expelled from the country because he was speaking out about human rights violations there. And so um, these missionaries sort of through traditional uh, communication networks and through uh, visits of their co-religionists um, make broader religious communities within the United States aware of, of what's happening. Um, and so I think that's really what's driving the involvement of these religious communities within the U.S. is that they have um, missionaries that they're supporting um, who are reporting back to them about these issues. It's interesting. To rewind just a little bit back to Rhodesia, do you get a sense that um, the same missionaries who are involved in what will become sort of Rhodesian activism in the United States, are they also civil rights actors? Is there an overlap there? Um, based on my reading of their um, sort of reminiscences, they were influenced to seek a missionary posting in Africa um, by what was happening domestically in the United States regarding the civil rights movement. But um, I wouldn't say that they were people who uh, were professionally involved, say, in the civil rights movement and then shifted to becoming okay. a missionary, but rather that as they were, um, say, getting their education and being trained as a missionary, they were um, they were sensitive to and interested in what was happening, and that motivated their request for a certain placement. Um, so I would say it's the context in which they are beginning their missionary careers. That's interesting, and 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 bringing up the civil rights point is interesting too. Everybody is sort of operating in this civil rights context. Do you do you think that's sort of driving this this turn to interest in in global human rights in this period? Can it be separated at all? I think that certainly everyone is operating in this context. It seems to influence some people in different ways, and I think that may be about. Um, for example, in the in the chapter on Chile, I talk about um, someone who was sent there as a missionary, and he talks very much about his experience of growing up in in a segregated community and participating in protests against segregation. And so, I think that for many people, um, 
the civil rights movement directly impacted their human rights activism. But I think that there are others um, for whom, say, some of these economists that I'm talking about, um, they're really driven by their personal connections to the human rights abuses, as opposed to, um, you know, I think maybe the civil rights movement might have primed them a little bit, but I think they're fundamentally focused on the fact that, you know, their good friend is in prison. Um, So I think, I mean, one of the key things is that Americans were motivated by different factors um, in this period. And um, certainly the civil rights movement was one of the most significant, but I wouldn't say that it was sort of evenly significant for all of the, the actors that I look at. And one last question on Rhodesia, and then I want to move on. What does this do? I mean, in this particular case, the U.S. government doesn't recognize that the Rhodesian government exists legally. But nevertheless, it has a kind of relationship with that government. What do, what effect does it have to have somebody like Arthur Goldberg at the UN speaking out against Rhodesia on top of this sort of non-state citizen activism that's going on in the background? Well, certainly um, the Johnson administration hoped that um, the stance that they did take and, um, and Goldberg's repeated statements um, would have both an external and an internal audience. Um, the Johnson administration was working very hard um, to uh, to try and convince American uh, leaders uh, within the civil rights movement that it cared about these issues. And uh, there was also an audience, not just of um, African leaders, but also of their allies, say, in the UN, uh, newly independent Asian leaders. And the Johnson administration wanted to signal that it was sort of on the right side of these questions of decolonization and race. And is there a shift when it comes over to Nixon? There's that famous um, memorandum, I think it was NSC 39, which he states, or the um, authors state that the preferred option is to try to have some kind of accommodation with the white minority regimes, because in their words, they're not going anywhere. It's better to work with them than just cast them out into the wind. Yes, um, there there is a shift um, from the Johnson administration to the Nixon administration. Initially, the Nixon administration tried to keep quiet how much of a shift it was um, contemplating undertaking because it knew that there would be considerable congressional opposition uh, to a shift. But um, the Nixon administration made very different calculations um, in terms of some of these issues. So let's move now. South Korea is an interesting one, especially in contrast to Chapter Two. Again, Rhodesia doesn't exist as a; it cannot be, in a sense, a U.S. ally, at least in any sort of open sense. South Korea, on the other hand, is an open American ally. So, what are the issues that American that some Americans are seeing with South Korea, and how does that play out? Well, the principal issue is that the um, the leadership in South Korea, it becomes increasingly um, dictatorial. Uh, There are repeated impositions of martial law. There are um, the passage of emergency decrees that make things like not attending your classes at university, um, a sort of a punishable offense. And um, any opposition, political opposition is targeted and treated quite harshly. And um, this is at a time in which the United States is offering considerable military assistance to South Korea. 
And um, there's a considerable presence of U.S. personnel in the country, um, both of which are seen by critics of the South Korean government as propping up um, this dictatorial leader and enabling him to stay in power. So essentially, there's there's a concern that the United States is complicit in his human rights abuses through its funding and its personnel. Now, where is the direction of the criticism coming from in this chapter? In the last chapter, at least some of it was coming from within the U.S. government, Goldberg. Um, are there voices at state? Are there non-citizen actors? Who's doing the talking here? So I would say that with regard to South Korea, um, you have a few constituencies who are critical of this. Um, you have missionaries. Uh, there's a considerable missionary presence. And as I mentioned, there was a, South, uh, a U.S. missionary stationed in South Korea who was arrested and expelled from the country. Um, and that arrest, I would say, only inspired more uh, criticism among missionaries about what the South Korean government was doing. There was also, um, within the diplomatic corps of the United States that were stationed in Seoul, uh, there were a number of critics, people who were um, in regular touch with opposition politicians or labor activists or journalists um, who were aware of and trying to improve the, the conditions that those people faced. And then within the U.S. government um, in Washington, there were members of Congress who were quite critical of the South Korean government and of uh, continued high levels of U.S. security assistance to that to that government. Now, it's in, but, but I guess, sorry, just to just to interject, um, there were not significant um, non-governmental organizations, either of people of Korean descent or of people who cared about what was happening in South Korea. Um, in other cases, you had organizations that that popped up um, that were um, very focused on, say, in the case of of Southern Rhodesia, the American Committee on Africa was quite active, but there were not, uh, at least I did not come across any sort of significant organizations that were working on the South Korean case. Um, there were a few academics who knew the country well, who would often testify before Congress, but there wasn't a kind of lobbying organization that was focused on South Korean issues. And I know it's difficult to prove why something didn't exist, but do you have any sense for, for why that maybe didn't come into being in this case? Well, in the book, I, I suggest a few reasons. Um, I think one of them may be tied to uh, U.S. immigration practices and that until 1965, you don't have um, significant immigration to the United States from the Korean Peninsula. I also think that... Um, that many Americans sort of experience of Korea was um, through the war in Korea and fighting against the Chinese and the North Koreans. And I think that um, because of that experience, a number of Americans were willing to perhaps be more flexible with their appraisal of the South Korean government because um, in their view, the leadership there sort of faced this larger existential threat from communism in the North, and they were therefore a bit more willing to um, to accept human rights violations for this sort of broader cause um, tied to Cold War priorities. And what is the response of the, of the, at least the executive branch to this sort of, th these criticisms that are coming um, 
from within the government and then this sort of small community of academics too? Well, I would say sort of looking at internal records that um, executive branch officials do not think that the steps that the South Korean government is taking are warranted um, by the security concerns, um, but they are not willing to, or they don't think it's worth it to sort of openly challenge these practices. Um, and some of that is tied to, um, I think, sort of loyalty to a key American ally, but also that the United States, um, say, thinking about uh, the Johnson administration, is distracted by the war in Vietnam and isn't necessarily going to challenge the South Korean government, which um, was contributing to the effort in Vietnam when it was so occupied um, with what was happening elsewhere in Asia. So I think some of it is about um, sort of the the allied relationship, but I think also um, for some of these leaders, the problems in South Korea don't rise sort of to the top of the agenda. Hmm. And that, that your last point about the war in Vietnam got me thinking on this point, what's the, what's the role of the war in Vietnam on, on this issue, but maybe even more broadly on activism in this period? I mean, you know it in the chapter, the, there are parallels between support for the South Vietnamese government, the South Korean government. What effect do you see that have play out? So for me, the most significant effect of the war in Vietnam is a kind of broad um, crumbling of the Cold War consensus, both that containment is always the best uh, foreign policy to be pursuing, but also of a kind of um, unquestioning support for U.S. leadership in terms of foreign policy. And so as as members of Congress and people outside of the government increasingly question what the United States is doing in Vietnam, I think they're increasingly willing to question U.S. policy in other areas of the world as well. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I see that as the most significant element. There, there are sort of other ways in which it, it pops up, but that is the, the kind of broad brushstroke, just like we were talking earlier about the ways in which the context of the civil rights movement is so key, the context of opposing the war in Vietnam is, is um, sort of at the heart of the worldview of many of these human rights activists. So let's move on to Greece, which we've already alluded to a bit. There are a few, th- I, I really enjoyed this chapter in part because it had such a personal dimension to it. So why don't you go into that? A little yeah. Bit? So in addition to the economists that I talked about earlier, who are motivated because they know Andreas Papandreou, um, there's also a man, James Beckett, who uh, marries a, a Greek woman, Maria, that he meets while he's traveling around the country uh, with his family in the late 1950s. And he moves with her to Geneva, um, where they hear the news about the 67 coup and all of the repression that followed, the political imprisonments, putting people in island concentration camps, the use of torture. And he sets out to make people in Europe and the United States aware of what's happening and to try and affect um, the way the junta is is conducting itself in Greece. And uh, one of the meetings that he is able to set up is with the head of Amnesty International, Sean McBride. And McBride suggests that um, mm. that they undertake a kind of fact-finding mission to Greece. And the outcome of this is that um, Beckett is a co-author of Amnesty International's report on torture in Greece uh, that 
really raised um, international attention to what was happening in that country. Um, and so he is, you know, because of this personal relationship, as well as he would say other um, kind of contextual factors, led him to become incredibly involved in um, highlighting what was happening and trying to change the practices of the Greek government. Um, I, I came to learn about him because as I, you know, I was saying earlier, I went to Boise, Idaho, and I went to Minnesota, and I went to all of these different congressional collections. And in all of them, I found letters from Elise Beckett in Lakeville, Connecticut. And, uh, and she was writing to sort of, it seemed like everyone, you know, not her own representatives, but she was writing to all of these people about uh, the problems uh, regarding human rights in Greece. And, and I just had this question in my notes for years, you know, why does Elise Beckett in Lakeville, Connecticut care about human rights? And um, over time, I came to realize it was because her son, James Beckett, cared about what was happening in Greece. Um, and so she really became this sort of one woman show, whether it was uh, in extensive correspondence to members of Congress or um, her son, James, told me that she went to uh, Capitol Hill here in Washington and would roller skate around the halls of Congress so that she could uh, more efficiently lobby members of Congress uh, regarding cutting off um, assistance to Greece. That's interesting. What's the relationship of the U.S. government to the, to the Greek coup plotters? And does that change over time? Um, I mean, I would say that the both the Johnson and Nixon administrations have a complicated relationship with the coup plotters um, in that they are a NATO ally that they see as really key to um, kind of defending the Eastern Mediterranean from the Soviet Union. Um, and I was interested to discover how much um, the kind of example of de Gaulle pulling France out of NATO um, struck fear in U.S. officials that essentially they couldn't push Greece too far um, because Greece might pull out of NATO as well. But at the same time, um, a number of, of officials are uncomfortable with um, both with the idea that, that Greece, sort of this you know, cradle of democracy, um, has had a military coup, but also with the idea that it's American tanks that are on the streets in Athens, um, repressing Greek students, say, who are demonstrating. And um, so even in the Nixon administration, which we think of as being uh, sort of generally less supportive of human rights as a priority, you have um, U.S. officials in Athens who are repeatedly saying, okay, so when are the elections going to be? Or when is there going to be a return to democracy? Um some of which I think is about the optics of U.S. security assistance to Greece, but I think some of which is about a, a sort of general um, predisposition among American officials to support democracy as a form of government. And so um, I think that U.S. officials were frustrated in the case of Greece that they weren't able to have a greater impact there. It's striking. I mean, you mentioned optics and, and that, that symbolism about Greece, cradle of democracy, what it means. Each of these case studies also, to me, has a certain sort of interesting optic that goes with it. With Rhodesia, you draw so heavily on civil rights. 
And in South Korea, of course, you have this sort of looming conflict or ongoing conflict in Vietnam. To what extent do you think these optics sort of drive these human rights issues? Well, I mean, I guess the question there is how much you see optics as being sort of representative of something else, or if that's just the end, essentially that the U.S. doesn't want to look bad um, versus I would say most of most of the actors that I'm looking at um, would say that they are motivated by what they see as the disconnect between American values and ideals and foreign policy in terms of of these human rights violations. So for, for them, it it's not that it necessarily just that it looks bad, say, to an external audience, but that it feels bad to them, that they think that it's kind of um, corroding the United States to be supporting repressive governments. It's almost a two-tiered optics. For the, for, US, for governmental actors, they're afraid, yeah, that they're going to look bad because of it, or that th- this will put the United States in a negative light, whereas for somebody else, they see this connected to a broader problem, race or war, or in this case, democracy, and its fragility. Yeah, and I, you know, and I think it's, a, it's about um, their sort of, in their, their sense of their own identity as an American. What does it mean to be an American? And for many of them, I think it means to support democratic governments and um, and the rights of human beings. And so when they see that their government is is not doing that as fully as they would like, I think it, it really gets, um, it raises serious questions about their own identity as an American. Fascinating. That's an interesting thread I, I could pull on all day, but we are limited for time. So let's keep moving. Uh, the fifth chapter, Chile. What happens in Chile? So, um, you know, certainly a lot has been written about the extent to which the United States uh, actively sought to destabilize uh, the Allende government um, from 1970 to 1973. But what I'm interested in the chapter is how Americans respond to the human rights violations that occur in the wake of the coup. Um, so the chapter essentially begins with, with the coup in September of 1973, and then goes forward through the end of the Ford administration, looking at um, primarily at efforts to cut off um, military assistance to the government in Chile, but also um, in this in the Senate, Ted Kennedy leads an effort to try and um, enable more Chilean refugees to enter the United States. So there's sort of two prongs of what American activists are concerned about. You know, they want absolutely to stop all security assistance, but they also want to offer um, sort of sanctuary to Chileans who um, who need to leave the country because their their lives and well-being are at risk. Now, we know now that the U.S. government was at the very least complicit in the coup and, and, and assisted in trying to destabilize Allende. How well was this understood by American human rights actors at the time, though? Um... I mean, I would say that many uh, of the actors that I look at believed that the United States uh, was complicit in destabilizing Allende and that there were news reports um, that they saw as confirming this belief. And as, um, as we move forward in time, then there are hearings um, about CIA oversight 
that confirm some of um, the actions that had been sort of alleged and reported on, but maybe not confirmed through official channels. So I would say that that this this sense that the United States was responsible um, pervades this period, even if there wasn't, um, you know, kind of the declassified cables that we can look at now and point to. Um, but there was a sense that not just the U.S. government, but also the U.S. corporations um, were complicit in what was happening there. Now, that's really interesting. And this was something I wanted to touch on. Um, Chile, and you say this in the book, I think, that it's the only of the case studies you looked at where there was an economic component to human rights. Um, generally, in these other cases, it stayed to political, civic, those rights, maybe social. Um, do you have any sense why economics sort of became part of the discussion here? What, what, what makes it different from the others? Well, I think that, um, I think it's based on the national actors, essentially the Chileans, um, and sympathizers with them, um, are being repressed in part because of their support for Allende's political, economic, and social policies. And I think that, um, you know, I think sometimes we, the picture that we have of, say, U.S.-based activists um, doesn't fully take account of how much they are influenced by um, actors in or people who have fled from the countries that they're concerned with. And so I think it's really um, the, the sort of discourse was shaped a lot by um, both Chileans and um, sort of people at the, the very far left end of the political spectrum in the what United States who were sympathetic with what Allende had been it, trying to do. It is in the position of at least its accusers can say that it is much more immediately complicit in what's going on in Chile in this period. What are the responses you're seeing coming out of the Nixon administration? The Nixon administration wants to stifle all criticism of Pinochet and the military. They want to stifle criticism within the State Department. They want to stifle criticism of journalists. They want to stifle criticism of refugees. Um, and they're, they are very concerned with the optics. Um, and some of the sort of great documents that have been declassified in connection with this case um, show Kissinger essentially telling Pinochet to just hurry up. <laughs> um, to and, and so there is not pressure to change human rights practices but to potentially change the timing and pace of them so that uh, the Chilean government can say, face less criticism at the UN or face less criticism within the Congress. Um, but it's not really about the substance of what the Chilean military is doing, but more how it's being reported on and perceived elsewhere in the world. You touched on an interesting tension that I perceived in the book, which seems to be between lower echelons within the State Department and and Kissinger, especially the really, I mean, the higher ups within the executive branch sort of fall within this too. In many cases, it, it, officials in the State Department at least betray some kind of uneasiness or discomfort with what's going on in these various geographical locations. Do you think that there was a long term shift? Um, that happens within the State Department during this period, or is it fairly consistent? I mean, there's certainly 
significant institutional changes within the State Department um, in that State Department officials are increasingly tasked uh, with monitoring human rights issues um, in the countries in which they're stationed or in the countries that they cover from Washington, um, and that there are mm. people who are um, writing, you know, by the end of the book, there are people who are writing these annual country reports about the human rights records of countries that are receiving assistance from the United States. But the reputation um, was that human rights was a kind of dead end thing to get into. Um, I didn't find that to be as true as I thought it would be when I was looking through, for example, um, transcripts of oral history interviews. I didn't I didn't see mm -hmm. as much resistance to the idea that the United States should pay attention to human rights as I have been led to believe might be the case. And and so, I, you know, it's possible that we could say that that's about an institutional shift. Um, I think it's also possible that we were misreading um, sort of the lack of, of State Department personnel's interest in human rights. I think perhaps in part because what I found in my research is that people who are stationed in these countries were far more engaged in and concerned about human rights issues than those who are based in Washington. And so I think this may get to a kind of question of sources. If you only are looking at an assistant secretary, um, maybe you're, you're not seeing the full picture of how much um, the labor attache is upset about the fact that union organizers are being arrested. That makes sense. Um, so then these, these we've laid out the five geographical case studies. Your sixth chapter is about Congress. Tell us a little bit more about that. So the sixth chapter is about uh, Donald Frazier, who is the chair of the House uh, Subcommittee on International Organizations and Movements, who in 1973 decides to hold a series of hearings about human rights. Um, his subcommittee then issues a report um, that includes suggestions for how U.S. foreign policy might better take account of and influence international protection for human rights, and then uh, which leads to a range of legislation, um, both that addresses sort of some of the institutionalization of attention to human rights within the State Department that I was talking about earlier, but also that um, influences the extent to which human rights conditions should be a factor in um, security assistance, economic assistance, and the voting of um, the United States on, say, international, within international bodies regarding loans and, and other things. So um, I see these hearings as really essential, both to making members of Congress and the American public more aware of the issue of human rights, but that they have the greatest long-term impact in terms of U.S. foreign policy going forward. Do you get a sense at all what motivated Frazier? Well, this was the the paper that I talked about um, that I that sort of led me to this project for this conference on Lyndon Johnson um, really focused on Frazier, and that was a question that motivated. I mean, it, it motivated, my, motivated my research for the whole book. I mean, I talked earlier about this question of like, why does Elise Beckett care about human rights? And I was really interested in why Frazier cared about human rights, because he didn't necessarily seem to have a kind of constituency that was pressing him on this. It was something that he seemed to have come to on his own. And um, 
as far as I can tell from talking to him, from spending a lot of time working through his papers, um, it's a sort of broad, a broad kind of vision of liberal democracy in which the United States should not be, you know, he talks a lot about the impact of the coup on Greece, coup in Greece on him, but also of the U.S. Um, 1965 intervention in the Dominican Republic, and essentially that the U.S. military and U.S. equipment and U.S. personnel, he he really thinks that the United States should not be actively involved in repressing um, citizens of other countries. For him, that does not fit at all with American values and ideals. And so he's someone who I think is really uh, influenced by this sort of broad weakening of kind of unshakable belief in and support for the U.S. government in terms of its its foreign policy. So I have a question, and I was this is one of those obnoxious two-part questions. First of all, was human rights a partisan issue in this period? I would say that there is a greater representation of Democrats among those who are active on human rights, but it is not an issue that was only the purview of Democrats. Um, Paul Findlay, who was a representative from Illinois, uh, was very active um, on Fraser's subcommittee. And I went through, I spent some time going through his papers and uh, people wrote to him about a wide range of human rights issues. So I would say that there are Republicans who are supportive of the human rights agenda. And then there are also Republicans who will support the agenda because it aligns with other priorities of theirs. Uh, for example, there are a number of members of Congress who are opposed to U.S. foreign assistance across the board. And so they were willing to support efforts to cut off security or economic assistance to repressive governments because it aligned with their broader opposition to foreign assistance, um, which is a little bit different than, you know, are they believers in the extent to which the United States should be taking account of human rights? But it has the same effect um, in that they they are willing to support these efforts to cut off um, security assistance, say, to Chile or to Greece. But I, th- I think it points at least an interesting dimension to some of the sort of, I don't want to say subconscious, but those sort of underlying factors that can undergird interest in human rights is also a question of what's the proper role of the United States in the world. And that, and that can draw in people who want to make the United States into a beacon of, of, of social liberty and also people who kind of don't want a big role for the United Absolutely. States and the globe. Um, and I, the other thing I would add sort of in trying to get a kind of picture of, of the partisan nature or not, I, I was quite interested in the extent to which during the Johnson administration, you have Democratic members of Congress who are opposing a Democratic president um, and the internal debates within um, the National Security Council and the State Department about trying to avoid congressional displeasure, say, if the United States started sending more heavy military equipment to Greece, um, which I think highlight the extent to which it's not, say, just a partisan issue, but that there are um, there are ways to think about um, what's motivating these people that's not just about kind of winning in some type of um, political or electoral battle. So here's the second part of that, of that teased second part question. Um, 
you know, in 2018, bipartisanship seems so profoundly dead, it's almost difficult to imagine. Was there a closer spirit of bipartisanship that was driving some of this? I don't think so. Um, it's not it, in that it's not something that I see the actors talking about as a priority, say that we need to convey a bipartisan front on this or that we need to make sure we get Republican support for X. Um, and so I, I don't see a sort of um, prioritization of bipartisanship as motivating say the tactics or strategies of some of these activists. Um, and I guess I, I might also question the extent to which there is not bipartisan support for human rights today. I mean, if we think about um, who are some of the most prominent voices on human rights right now, I think we'd have to look at John McCain and Marco Rubio, um, even if some Republicans might say that um, it might be critical of, of human rights as a sort of democratic issue. Um, within the Congress, there seems to be considerable um, bipartisanship, at least regarding some human rights issues. Well, that's really, so one of the striking things to me in, in the case studies you outlined is that some of them, Chile, fall very much on the left in American life. Um, but Soviet Jewry is also something that sort of exists as an issue for more conservative Americans. What it seems to say to me is that bipartisanship isn't really so much a thing as that human rights, it needs to be specified. And then depending on its specificity, it can apply to different people. But it's, it's, not, it's not a transcendent issue inherently. I wonder what you think about that. I, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of pausing about this idea of it not being a transcendent issue um, because I, I guess I would say that I think it does transcend a lot of other divides, whether they're um, racial or religious or, or political. Um, but I think your initial point that you can get very strange bedfellows, strange political bedfellows on human rights issues is accurate. I mean, you, the sort of, the neoconservatives, um, right, come out of a kind of Henry Jackson approach to the Cold War, which says that detente is immoral for ignoring the human rights violations of the Soviet Union and for not pressing for greater freedom of emigration for Soviet Jews. And so um, very much you have, um, I think, people who are motivated not necessarily by a kind of universal and indivisible commitment to human rights, but um, support for a specific type of human right or or human rights in a specific place or a specific way that um, that bring people together who wouldn't necessarily um, agree on all of the other sort of items in their political agenda. Wonderful. Now, we're just about at the end of our hour here, but I wanted to ask one last question. What are you working on now? Or if you're in between, what are you thinking about looking at next? So I'm doing a few things right now. Um, one thing that I've just finished is a paper about uh, congressional activism in response to uh, in increasing repression in Uruguay in the mid-1970s. I had initially thought that I would have a chapter in the book that would look at the Southern Cone um, broadly, but there was so much material on Chile that I couldn't fit anything else in. So this is um, a sort of an outgrowth of the project, something I wasn't able to fully explore in the book. Um, and then moving forward, 
what I'm working on is Americans who are who are active overseas. Um, this is sort of building on my argument that transnational connections drive American human rights activism. But I'm interested in Americans who are not necessarily involved in human rights in any way. Um, Americans who are serving abroad as teachers, um, as students, as business people, um, as artists, and trying to understand how their transnational encounters shape U.S. foreign policy. All right. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me today, Dr. Snyder. Thank you so much for having me. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.